0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The George Poo Show. I'm your host, George Poo. And I have to say today we have so many topics. Thanks to you know, Matthew Black helping us prepare all the topics. So, Matt, how's it going?
1: It's going well, George. I don't even know what's going happening anymore. We seem to have Twitter breaking down. We seem to have the crypto markets in despair. You know, it's fun times, you know? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, we have our co-host Soham. Soham, how's your day? day
2: has been pretty good. It's getting busy near the year end, but yeah, the markets and everything's kind of been... A rough ride. So,
0: it should be a good episode. Yeah, there's a lot of development happening, you know, definitely over the past few weeks. And, Matt, last time we spoke was the SBF FTX fiasco that might. So, FTX founder SBF was arrested by Bahamian authorities um, this evening after the United States attorney for the Southern District of New York shared a sealed indictment with the Bahamian government, right? Setting the stage for extradition and U.S. trial for the one time crypto billionaire at the heart of the cryptocurrency exchanges collapse and then you know the u.s attorney for the southern District of new york said on twitter that the federal government is anticipating to moving to unseal the indictment in the morning so how many first reactions
2: well shock for sure i didn't think it would happen this soon and i'm honestly not even sure about like the extradition treaty between like bahamas and u.s so i'd be a little bit interested to kind of read about that and how that would work but overall i think It's just kind of crazy. I I honestly thought he was going to get away with it, if I'm being completely honest. Just somehow, (laughs) some (laughs) way.
1: Matt, what's your take? I'm very happy to see this. I was kind of in the camp with Soham. I was like, you know, I wasn't sure if this was going to take a while for him to finally be arrested or if it was going to happen quickly. And it seemed like it was taking a while, but I'm really glad to see that the powers at play have done the right thing and that this is going to likely go to trial because... You know, puff pieces from the New York Times just, you know, just weren't doing it for me. You know, I'm going to be honest. So I'm, I'm very glad to see that this occurred. I'm hoping that he goes to jail for quite a bit of time for, for what he did. And I hope this is a lesson to everyone that has their funds in an exchange right now, that they take it off for God's sake. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's so surprising hours ago he was uh, interviewing with Forbes and doing a Twitter space. And now he's arrested. I just think it's uh, it's very dramatic the way that he thinks he's getting away with it. Um, It's just beyond me, I think. Do you
2: guys think that he himself convinced himself that what he was doing was for the greater good? Or do you think he knew that like, yeah, like what he's doing is malicious? Like, Like, do you think he was a bad actor or he just like was somehow like so naive that he convinced himself that he's like the hero that the world needed?
1: I don't know. That's a hard question. I, I feel like it's a bit of both because like the whole thing about, oh, I'm saving the world. I'm giving all my money away. He revealed mm-hmm. that in those Twitter messages back and forth. He revealed that to be like a bunch of crap. And so it was he also like thinking in that manner in terms of actually getting the, the money back for people? Like maybe he was that delusional because I feel like when people get a certain amount of power, they think they can do anything and they don't realize what the the truth of the situation is. I find it hard to believe that he would be that delusional. I'm surprised that he didn't get like a non extradition country before all this went down. Like that's the only thing that's pointing me towards maybe he was delusional. What are your thoughts, George? It is an orchestrated
0: scheme, right? Like that I think is undebatable. He knew he was doing something wrong, he's doing certain things, trying to reverse that or oh. cover it up as long as it could, like a Ponzi scheme. Mm-hmm. So he must have known that, you know, things are going down. He's just trying to cover it. So I kinda of, on a belief side is that he really thinks he's screwed up, but maybe somehow he thinks he can make those money back to his um, mm-hmm. investors, which yeah. is this thing is made of.
1: I agree. Well, I think it's more than that, too. I think he was doing all those things and covering his tracks, but I think he thought he could get away with it. And I think he still believes that he could get the motor running again and get the whole operation up and running, even though it's fractional reserve banking. And so maybe it's delusion in terms of what he can achieve and how he can continue to defraud. But he, he knows very well how to cover his tracks.
0: Yeah, and I was just reading from the CNBC article. The current CEO of FTX, who, who's hired to clean up the mess, is supposed to testify to Congress this week. So in mm-hmm. his prepared remarks released on Monday, he said FTX went on a spending binge from late 2021 through 2022 when approximately $5 billion was spent buying a myriad of businesses and investments many of which may be worth only a fraction of what's paid for them. And then there's also a billion dollars in loans and other payments to insiders. Question to you, Soham, is like, don't you think that's knowingly committing those frauds by spending all those money on a spending spree?
2: In terms of his, like, I definitely think, like, yeah, he knew everything in terms of, like, the scheme. The reason why I was asking the question the way I asked it was, do you think his, like, bigger picture, like, once everything was, like, said and done, was that he was going to do something philanthropic, like, at the end of it all? Mm -hmm. Like, do you think that's what they... was it but i think regardless this is going to be kind of interesting to see how everything plays out in the next
1: couple of days right you were asking to like, do the ends justify the memes for him from the twitter messages it doesn't seem like he was trying to do something philanthropic it sounds like that was just for the news but i guess we'll, well never know we'll never know yeah. what he would have done if he had succeeded yeah. i'm just glad all the softball
0: questions asked by the journalists um, both <laughs> is not able to stop <laughs> it's not able to stop the actual diamonds and the prosecutions yeah. So it would be really interesting to see the extradition. Probably gonna take a while, given like, you know, what it looks like. You might fight it. And then after that, you know, the actual trial as well would be really interesting to see that. So what happens to the CEO of Almadina Research in predictions?
1: Was she like seen in New York like the other day or something, eating a sandwich or something? I don't know. I, I saw some <laughs> memes going around. I don't know. I don't know what happens to her because it seems like I thought she was trying to get to Dubai, but I don't know if she actually made it. And then I imagine that she's going to be in the same boat and that they're also going to try to arrest her. But I don't know if she's in a non-extradition country yet. So if she she was she's in a New non-extradition York. country, she I is think. in New York? Yeah, she was in New York last week buying coffee. And I think uh, the barista
0: confirmed that <laughs> uh, in New York. So, but, I mean, there, there has to be some patterns leading yeah. to those events, right? She's buying like a coffee in New York. Any sane person is not going to do that. So they might. it means she might have already flipped on SPF. That's a possibility as well, because people are posting on Twitter that, you know, the coffee shop is actually just like 10 minute, five minute drive away from the FBI headquarters. So, mm,
1: <laughs> so uh, Very interesting.
0: Something interesting happening behind the scenes. Uh, so how many predictions? What's happening? How, how
2: I just think both of them are just incredibly either just brave or delusional in the fact that they didn't go to, again, non-express country or the fact that SBF keeps talking. I really just don't understand what's going through either of their heads, but if it was the fact that, yeah, like, you know, like she turned on SPF, I, that's probably the only thing that makes sense in the situation. But even then, I don't think she would get, immunity. maybe she would get immunity, but I don't think she should get immunity considering like she was definitely a pivotal part for everything here.
0: It's just, if she commingled the funds, if that's a crime, losing money on a hedge fund, like Matt, you said it's not a crime. So
2: hey, wasn't there a group chat name like for this, like wire fraud or something? Like they had a, Yeah,
1: I, I believe so. Well, it would also be like conspiracy to commit X, Y, Z because user funds were sent directly to Alameda. And so there's something mm-hmm. fishy going on there. But yeah, you're right. Like running a hedge fund, that's not illegal. I don't think she gets off scot-free. Maybe she has some type of plea deal or something. Maybe.
0: Yeah. So how's it going for you guys as a crypto business? Are you seeing any impacts you know, on your business, on your brand? Can you briefly explain to our audience what is Atomic Finance?
1: Yeah. And just quick thing, George, I would call us a Bitcoin-specific business, not a crypto business. So just to give everyone a little bit background on us. So I'm Matt. I'm the co-founder of Atomic Finance. And what we focus on is building tools that allows for folks to be able to get access to financial tools on Bitcoin without actually giving custody. Now, what is giving away custody of your Bitcoin? What does that actually mean? A lot of people, when they you know get into Bitcoin for the first time, they might go to Coinbase, they might go to a different exchange. And they might purchase some bitcoin and it sits on the exchange there at the end of the day that exchange is holding your money for you and you have to trust them you have to trust that they're not going to run away with the capital like with what happened with sbf and ftx and so one of the really nice things about you know building non-custodial tools is even if we disappear our users still have access to their money and so they never need to be worried about the case where we're going to rug pull them or we're going to disappear with their Bitcoin. And so that's what we build. We build financial tools that allow for people to get access to non-custodial tools on Bitcoin.
0: And can you talk us more, Matt? I think Soham was having the same questions. Like what is custodial and non-custodial? So what is FTX? Is FTX and custodial part exchange?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question. So FTX is absolutely a custodial exchange, but they they weren't even that, (laughs) let's be honest. So obviously when you used FTX, you went to the site and you logged in with an account And when you created that account, the expectation was if I go and put US dollars onto FTX and I go and buy Bitcoin, the expectation is that there's Bitcoin on the other end, that they've gone and hedged one-to-one. And that's usually the expectation that you have as a user of an exchange, is that if someone's taking custody of your funds, that they are backed one-to-one for those funds. And so FTX is absolutely custodial. They weren't even backed one-to-one, by the way. I don't know if you guys heard, like, SBF was doing the rounds on Twitter Spaces saying, Hey, yeah, you know, like if you put USD on the FTX, like we wouldn't actually have Bitcoin on the back end. You know, like how much Bitcoin did they even have at the end? They had like no Bitcoin. Like (laughs) it's just insane. Yeah.
0: Okay. And circle back to the question, Matt, like as a Bitcoin business, I know for sure that you guys are a different type of business as like exchanges or anything with, related to FTX. So how's the FTX fiasco like? Has it any impact on your business?
1: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think this has put a scare in the market, but I think it's also like for us, this has been really great advertising because anyone who's wondered, you know, why do you need non-custodial? Why do you need to hold your own keys? You know, that's, that's a typical like, term that's used in Bitcoin, which is like not your keys, not your coins. If they're on the exchange, you can be rug pulled. You need to be holding your own keys and you need to have them in cold storage. And so the message that's come across, I think, to a lot of our users is like they understand exactly why it's necessary to have non-custodial. That makes a lot of sense. The things that users have been more, more concerned about is we have strategies on our app that allow for people to earn a return on their Bitcoin. So one of those strategies is say like a covered call strategy, for example, and we show on the app, that there's an 8% APY historically on that particular strategy. And so immediately, you know, the funny thing now is that's putting off red flags for people, which is great. It's great. That's a really good thing. People should be thinking that thing. People should be thinking adversarially, but it's just funny because everyone, their dog has been saying, Hey, make 8% on your Bitcoin for the past, you know, three, four years. And now Celsius is dead and BlockFi is dead. And so it's really ironic. So, you know, it's some good and it's bad. I think in the long term, it's going to be really good because it's, it's getting the, that advertising. It's advertising for non-custodial tools to be in the space. So the clean house, let's clean it out, you know?
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I gonna, so man, do you ever see like now with this whole thing, like you're saying that, yeah, consumers are a bit more skeptical or are you seeing like a lot more like, like concerns about like everything? Like do people like not believe maybe like, oh, you guys aren't non-custodial stuff like that? or It's been good since the last we have some
1: drama. No, I think that's always like a a legitimate question. And the typical term that's used in Bitcoin is don't trust, verify. And what does that mean? That means like, you know, whatever tool you're using, you shouldn't immediately just trust whatever you're using. You should verify the tools. You should verify how it's working. And that's bringing a really important question to light, which is like, if you're saying I'm going to get this return on my Bitcoin, how am I getting that? Right. This isn't like, oh, we're going and lending out that capital and doing X, Y, Z with it, it's like you're selling options. You're selling cover calls, which allows for you to make that make that yield. It's not coming from nowhere. There is no free lunch. I think one thing for us is like our core group of users has always been a group of users that is very focused on that exact messaging, don't trust verify, and they want to be able to use tools that are like that. And so they're always asking us that questions and being very skeptical. And I think that's important. I think that's a good thing. And I think that's something that people should be doing more. If you're putting your money on an exchange, you should be asking those questions like, where are these funds stored? And you should be probably be taking it off the exchange and putting it in uh, cold storage. So, yeah. Yeah.
2: No, I think that's important. Like, I feel like during the 2020, 2021 times, people kind of stopped asking questions and they just believed everything was like, yeah, no, this will make me money. Great. And then, yeah, I think like that kind of like was like detective work, I would say. It was like, that's needed. And like, it's good that it's starting to come out again.
1: Well, yeah. And I think also people were just focused on, hey, how do I make money as quickly as possible rather than... Exactly. How can I build something for the long term or how can I stack, accumulate my wealth for the long term? There's lots of folks that got stuck up in NFTs on whatever thing. Like I just heard the other day there was like a porn star that she had an NFT and then she rugged them. Right. So she sold sold it all off. So, you know, that goes to zero overnight. And so it's not great because like it's annoying, too, because like I think there's like the, the masses that exist and they're going and mm-hmm. looking in at crypto and they're like, oh, my God, crypto is going to zero. But really, like, Bitcoin is continuing to work, it's continuing to create blocks every 10 minutes, it's continuing to be censorship resistant and decentralized, and that's not stopping anytime soon. There's new developments with like Bitcoin in Africa that's going on, which we'll probably get into later. So, you know, Bitcoin continues to work at the end of the day.
0: Has that changed the yield building business in crypto and Bitcoin forever, Matt? Do you think that event is like wiped out all the future yield building businesses, like they will not even be possible to exist? Because customers
1: won't trust me. Uh, I don't know, like, I mean, we talked about this last time, George, Is like, does lending make sense on Bitcoin? It's like, hey, okay, here's a question. It's like, does fractional reserve banking make sense on Bitcoin? That's the underlying question. And I remember we talked about last time, the idea that if you're doing lending in a traditional system, there's a lender of last resort. There's no lender of last resort in Bitcoin, which you know is a good and a bad thing, because it means that the bad actors that are sitting there and they don't have all of your capital, they're going to get called one day and there's going to be a bear market that occurs. And and so do I think that they're never going to do like unsecured lending again? Probably not. They're probably going to make the same mistakes, <laughs> right? Like they're, they're probably going to go and, you know, spin up these businesses again, but are they going to be a lot more careful? I hope so. But people also have a, have a short-term memory. Do I think the pain is done? Probably not. It's probably the same stuff is going to happen once again.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, since then, like we have some interesting developments, you know, from our notes, I think the first thing is the Kevin O'Leary defending SBF, which I think is a really interesting topic. So Matt, do you want to give us like a quick intro about what happened?
1: Yeah, well, it sounds like Kevin O'Leary just went in, he invested a significant amount in FTX, and then he got some type of $15 million kickback for being a promoter of FTX, which is bizarre. Who the hell gets a $15 million promoter package? What are your guys thoughts? Like, why is there so many puff pieces about SBF these days, like, why is everyone their dog, New York Times, they're all writing these pieces about SBF, painting him as like, oh, you know, he didn't get to achieve his vision of saving the world. And it's like, this guy stole billions of dollars from your average consumer. And this is the puff piece that you're writing about it. But I think maybe, maybe they don't want this to end up being criminal, because if it ends up being criminal, there's clawback. And it's the same thing that happened to the people who invested in Bernie Madoff. The same thing is going to happen here where like that $15 million FTX package that Kevin O'Leary got is gone because they're going to claw it back. I don't know. What are your best thoughts?
2: I think that in general, like a lot of the people that were like supporting SBF, like FTX, everything, they didn't just support it. They were very vocal about it, right? Kevin O'Leary is a public figure the New York times is supposed to be a very, very trusted source, right? For like your news, things like that. If you're out here like constantly promoting somebody in like a green light, the moment like all this kind of stuff kind of happens, you're not going to want to like backtrack saying that we were wrong because you want people to trust you for like the next piece that you say and things like that, right? Because I think that kind of is playing a big figure in terms of people just kind of be like, oh, well, SPF's not as bad as like what other people are saying and stuff like that.
1: Well, well, my question is who is bought and paid for, right? So like, and this, this isn't just conjecture either, either, the block, the CEO, I guess he resigned the other day. The block is like a crypto publication. Apparently he got paid... I guess FTX bought him houses in the Bahamas or whatever, and, you know, and they got other sponsorship deals or whatever. But who does a sponsorship deal where you get a nice big house in the Bahamas and on the side? And so who else has bought and paid for? Yeah, I, I think it's
0: it. a very sophisticated scheme. I mean, it's a very sophisticated scam that I think SPF has put up, right? like When the funds are not one on one back up on Bitcoin, what happens is that there's a lot of free cash for SPF and his team to just disposal at their wishes. And if you have as much cash as to as you wish, what would you do? You will save your own ass. And mm-hmm. basically, by saving your own ass, that means you know donating money to the Democratic Party, becoming the second biggest donor of the party, and then also controlling the media narratives, right? Like I think there are many media companies receiving investments from SBF, or they have been influencing some ways to stand on the side of SBF, right? So that's yeah. like the I'm- second piece, and also just buying influencers, right? Like paying them off, giving them like millions of dollars. Like if someone gives you millions of dollars to promote a brand, I guess most people wouldn't say no. So, and also just like, you know, also getting the stadium name FTX Stadium and also a few other things. So that's just one thing. It's a very sophisticated scam.
1: Well, I feel like this is a bizarre thing, which is like, if you go in and you create a Ponzi and you pay off enough people, do they not convict you, <laughs> right? Like, is that the playbook?
0: I don't know. It's weird that how the mainstream media controls the narrative these days, right? I think the way they shape Elon Musk versus SPF, which we talked about last time on the show. But if you think about, like, if you don't agree with their narratives, they come and destroy you reputationally. Right? They can paint you in a bad direction, in a bad, like, negative fashion, right? Whereas uh, if you are on the same team with them, if you're like uh, some elite from the Ivy League, you know, like earning hundreds of thousands, went to like prestigious high schools then i think they actually gave you some mercy right they wouldn't go straight to your face so i feel like that's just a very bad thing that's happening with society these days and i've heard business insider also took money from sbf that's why they're putting some very friendly pieces about sbf I, I cannot speak for the other publications because i personally i have i don't know right but the, the fact that i don't know we don't know and you know the world might never know about these things it's just very scary to me so mm-hmm. what do you think
2: yeah, I don't think I guys heard. Like, um yeah, the scam, I think it goes even deeper. Like, SPF kind of planned it where, yeah, like, he was the second biggest donator for the Democratic Party. But he kind of claimed, like, now that, oh, yeah, he also donated about the same amount for the Republican Party. But he did that in secret. So that the media companies, like, in yeah, New York Times over like that, he's seen as a good guy because the media companies are usually more Democratic-leaning anyways. So this was very well planned for him in terms of putting the money in the right pocket. So even if it were to come falling down, if you fall down on a nice net, like on a nice, comfortable bed. So we'll see
0: where it all goes down though. What matters is like those people promoting those scams, are they mm-hmm. going to be prosecuted for promoting something that's scam or will they get a fine? Or is there any penalties, you know, like that's facing those people that are promoting those things that, you know, make people lose money.
2: I think the most majority of the people that promote it could get would be gross negligence, and that's like the highest case in terms of what you can charge them, mm-hmm. because Realistically, majority of them they probably just didn't do the due diligence. They got a lot of money in their pocket. They're like, okay, we'll do this. Like Tom Brady, Giselle, um, yeah, like Kevin O'Leary. There's so many people that SBF paid off, but I don't think any of them can be held liable or will be held liable.
1: I agree. One, well, and I don't even know necessarily if these guys even knew what was going on, right? There's lots of promoters, like lots of podcasters too, that were talking about FTX, and I guess that's the thing as well. It's like, how are you supposed to know as a podcaster, like? Even in the case of like Celsius and like and BlockFi, right, that came down alongside all of this mess. There's lots of podcasters that talk about, you know, go get 8% on your yield uh, in Bitcoin using BlockFi and now BlockFi is bankrupt. You know, are they going to come after them? Probably not. But I mean, that's the underlying thing is like, if you're promoting a particular business, you have to trust what they're doing because if they're not doing the right stuff, you've got egg on your face. And I think there's a lot of folks that got egg on their face in in this debacle, so... Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one thing I was thinking about, Matt, is I initially I, I thought, you know, the reason why the regulators, prosecutors are slow in acting is because there is like a FTX US and FTX International. And I, my thinking back in the days was like, OK, most of the money that's lost are from people that, that are like using FTX International, which is not like in a US jurisdiction, right, which is non-US users. So that I was thinking, OK, maybe that's why like, they're slowing to act because it's mostly other jurisdictions people that got scammed. But like, Matt, isn't it true that also like FTX US is also frozen, that people are not able to get their money out? Although I heard, I think he's saying that mm-hmm. people one day will get their
1: money back. So. Okay, well, he's full of it. He, he, he goes on Twitter spaces and he's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to, to, you know, get everyone their money back. But I think he's, I don't know, he's, he's full of it. So in the Chapter 11 bankruptcy, FTX US declared bankruptcy right alongside FTX International, right alongside Alameda. And so couple days, I think before everything went down, he said, yeah, FTX US is fine. Well, it wasn't fine. It's part of the bankruptcy proceeding. So, you know, maybe they'll see their money in eight years. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Speak of media, I think it's important to cover what's happening in the last week, you know, titled Twitter files, right? There are so many things happening with Twitter files. So I'm not sure if you guys are up to date with it. So Matt, you want to start with uh, Twitter files, you know, shadow banning and blacklisting entire accounts.
1: This just came up like very recently, like in the last, last couple of days. I guess this is what Elon Musk has, I guess, been working on getting out into the media as well. Basically the idea of, and this wasn't made transparent in any manner, but essentially what Twitter was doing was they were doing shadow banning essentially. So what is shadow banning? Shadow banning is simply when like someone believes that you know, their entire Twitter account is working properly, but in reality, they're not getting any reach and so they're not going to show up in people's feed they're not going to be pushed to the top if they're replying to someone they're going to be at the bottom it essentially allows for freedom of speech but not freedom of reach and so it came out like recently that like this was going on you know quite a bit during you know, the time of Jack Dorsey and, and shortly after him and it was a lot of kind of conservative accounts that were being shadow banned essentially and this wasn't being done transparently at all and so there was a big kind of reveal recently in the last couple of days that Elon Musk essentially put out that, you know, showed, hey, all of these different accounts were shadow banned, a lot of conservative specific accounts, and it was not made public to anybody. And so what does that mean for Twitter moving forward? Well, it means that at least now we know that that was going on. But I mean, my gosh, what a reveal to occur. And
2: I think Elon also said that, like, uh, from now on, like, one of his goals for Twitter is going to be that if you do get shadow banned, like, I don't think he's trying to stop the shadow ban, but if you do, you know exactly for how long and the reason why, because i kind of agree with the whole like yeah you know like have some of some like freedom of speech should be there but like that freedom of reach is kind of like a right it's not isn't a right sorry it's a privilege so Mm -hmm. just the the idea of like being able like oh no how much this whole like like the next part after twitter files kind of like slows down i think it's gonna be a big step to see if they
0: can implement that well think about the way they shadow ban right like if you operate a social media account then Of course, like sometimes you get shadow banned for absolutely no reason, right? If you have a Mm -hmm. Facebook ad account and you're doing something in finance or fintech or targeting certain groups of people, or your messaging is wrong, you're going to get shadow banned, right? Shadow banning is not a new concept. Mm -hmm. Just like, in my opinion, shadow banning people based off their political viewpoints and based off like they're not really standing up to a party line. I think that is very concerning. And it feels like to me that those shadow banning, Matt, if I'm correct, like those shadow banning are very specific towards U.S right wing politicians and conservatives doesn't really apply to people from other countries of the world. Like I'm just finding that to be very surprising.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's my understanding of like what occurred so far, but I I agree with you. Like the whole big issue with this is like, there's no notification of it. Like, okay, this isn't the internet, right? Twitter is a private business. Well, I, I guess they were previously a public business, but they're a business, right? And so they can do, they can do whatever they want really to a certain extent but not notifying their users. Like you could be a user that's posting every day and you're like, oh, why aren't I getting that much reach? Why aren't I getting that many likes? You're wasting your time basically posting on a social media site that's shadow banning you. And so at least have the transparency to be obvious about like who's being shadow banned and why. I recall like back in the day, like on the topic of banning, there was lots of folks like during the whole COVID and COVID vaccine, but they were banned for violating Twitter's policies essentially, but weren't given an exact reason of why they were banned. And so it seems like it was just the Wild West of Twitter administration kind of deciding what aligned with their views and what did. That's pretty concerning.
2: And on top of that, some of the people like, uh, yeah, doing that COVID thing, uh, talking about the vaccine, some of those people turned out to be right as well. Like it wasn't that everyone was just making crazy conspiracy theories. Like, some people were being truthful, like they were being accurate and they still got shadow banned and everything just because, yeah, Twitter said it doesn't align with our mission.
1: Well, it's also very bizarre, like, I don't know if you guys heard about the whole Hunter Biden laptop story, like, Mm -hmm. actually, before that came out, the FBI went to the social media sites, and said, Hey, just so you know, there's going to be information coming out about the Hunter Biden laptop story. And it's all fake, basically, right. And so they were already primed. So they were ready to go. As soon as that stuff started being shared, they started like suppressing it or uh, started shadow banning people that were, were sharing that information. And then, of course, it ends up being true. And so that's pretty bizarre when the Fed is intervening in mm-hmm. like how a social media site kind of runs their business. I don't mm-hmm. know. yeah, I, that's a little yeah.
0: strange. And I think you started with I think fifty or a hundred intelligence officials. I think it's signed a letter. They said that the pattern of the Hunter Biden laptop story, I think, has a signs of Russian linkage, Russian disinformation. Right now, I think the upcoming, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has said he's going to subpoena all those 50 or 100 intelligence officials to testify under oath on why they're making those decisions. So I'm like, is there a case to be made that Twitter only executed what they think is truthful based on that letter signed by those intelligence officials?
2: Yeah, I think in general, like whenever the government comes knocking, and, and you're a business, you're probably going to open that door and like try to be as welcoming as possible. So, if, yeah, the FBI came to you, gave you like a fifty, hundred people. I don't know exactly how many signed the affidavit, but so yeah, this is going to be not true, and like they're trying to say that it's going to cause propaganda, it's going to cause riots, all that stuff. Like there was a lot of like political stuff that happened right before that too, right? So Twitter probably just wanted to like just take a step back. And in that situation, I don't think anything was on Twitter's like thing that they did anything wrong because i'm assuming if even if it was like facebook if the fbi comes knocking saying that yeah, this is going to be completely false and it could like jeopardize a lot of things you would probably
0: just sit down and listen to what and they that's what it. happened that's what happened Zuckerberg admitted in in an interview i think it said that if he had knocked on his door and told him that you know that thing has russian disinformation patterns so that's mm-hmm. why they shadow banned the new york post account
1: but wait didn't that end up being a lie
0: yeah i think yeah. it ended up being proven that the laptop story is is true, right? So, yeah.
1: So what does that mean? Does that mean that the FBI lied to Twitter and, and Facebook? Like did they? That's the question: Is did they know?
2: <laughs> yeah. At that point, it's about like um. At that point, did they believe that to be the truth? Yeah. Then they change based on more information. That's gonna be probably what we see like when they all get subpoenaed
0: by Kevin McCarthy. Right. Hopefully. Yeah, it's a magical. Some people still think that if that is not political.
2: Does that scare you guys? Like maybe that's like a bigger question to ask is. Yeah, when like things like the government, like, you know, like federal authorities come like, because like the social media is kind of a new source of journalism, right? Like a new media. A lot of people get their information from there. Yeah, that's tough stuff. Is that kind of scare you guys when it comes to like those companies are kind of like always going to be peer pressured into doing what they say?
1: I think that's an interesting question is like, typically they have been so far. Is Twitter going to continue to be peer pressured or is, or is Elon Musk, if they go knocking on his door, is is he just going to tell everybody, Hey, I just had a meeting with the FBI and they told me to suppress this, you know, (laughs) I don't know. You know, you've got this billionaire that's not in line with the rest of the narrative that's been going on. Mm -hmm. That's kind of just doing his own thing and values freedom of speech over anything else. Do you guys think something different is going to happen with Twitter now?
0: From what I'm seeing, I already see more discussions, more viewpoints being allowed on the platform, which I think is a really positive sign, right? Like Before yeah. that, you know, like during 2020 and 2021, it really just feels like, it feels depressing to be on Twitter. It feels like if you say anything that's going to, you know, not be aligned with central government talking points, and which brings mm-hmm. up a good point about, you know, like Matt, about like the FBI, Hunter Biden story, it's not really about like what they did with a laptop, is that, you know, in a dying democracy, I have read a book. It says in a dying democracy, one of the last steps of its collapse is that people no longer believes in the authority figures, right? And FBI is one of them. You know, like the White House is one of them, at least in the U.S. side. So if people stop believing in those institutions, I think that's like a sign that you know society is starting to decline or democracy is starting to decline. So I think that is like more important than you know just like the 100 the story on its own,
1: right? Which might not, mm-hmm. may or may not matter. Well, well, and it's also, I think, a question about like where is the place for debate, right? And so, like, if COVID is coming along and they already have a specific narrative that they're pushing for, what is the right way to deal with COVID? And lots of people have a lot of concerns with that. Well, shouldn't there be a large debate about that? If a lot of people have a concern, you know, maybe we would have been in a spot where we wouldn't have needed to do as many lockdowns or pushed for for one method over another as much. Maybe we would have been able to sit down and have a debate and come up with new ideas of how to deal with the problem at hand instead of one particular narrative being pushed on everybody.
2: No, I agree with you, man. I think discourse in general has kind of like uh, gone less and less and more just unhealthy debate where there has to be a winner, not really like there has to be a compromise between the two. I think that's kind of become like where things like changed to end. Yeah, I think it's really like just hard for... What's going to end up happening whenever, like, um, yeah, COVID was a big thing. What We're going to have the next version of COVID, whatever that could be, a war, maybe another you know, pandemic, we don't know. But if there isn't that political discourse and it's something more dangerous, like COVID, like everyone was able to stay home it was a little bit, wasn't as like lethal, but it could get really bad if we're not able to have like information from both sides at the same level.
0: Yeah. Think about the countries in the world where people don't have free social media, right? People who have social media that have social mm-hmm. And I feel like all of us just went through that exact same experience in the last three years. We saw that, you know, people don't agree with what the authority says being, you know, labeled as, you know, COVID-19, you know, misinformation, skeptic, or I, I think there are more labels to it, uh, I don't know if you, Matt, if you wanna add a few. I think there's so many labels, people- The
1: fringe minority, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: fringe minority, uh, you know, like, like truckers who don't want vaccine to get vaccinated, which at a time is controversial, but, you know, I, I don't feel like they're
1: even given a voice. Right what's ironic to me is I mean now we're getting into like Canadian politics, but you know Justin Trudeau sits there and you know applauds the people of China for standing up for their rights, and yet the irony is that he suppressed the rights of the truckers for freedom of speech here in Canada, and so what's up with that right
2: it wasn't the freedom of speech, it was a freedom of protest like uh the moment they were like on that bridge, like they took away their assets, it wasn't just like them being mad at them, like, yeah. That freedom convoy was a pretty big red flag. That you know, in Canada, we always just assume that, or like the United States politics, that kind of like censorship is there. We're kind of like a different region, but that kind of showed that it's all one and the same. It's like, like their bank accounts, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what it was? It was a great advertisement for Bitcoin. It's like, oh well, yeah. actually, <laughs> you're. Oh, I trust my bank account in Canada. They're they're never going to freeze my bank account. Wrong. They will, and they can, and they did. And so that's all there is to it. So on, like, on the topic of China as well, did you guys hear that like recently, I think Xi Jinping recently got back into power, but there was the big protest that was occurring around zero COVID policy, and they recently switched it. Now they're no longer doing a zero COVID policy, which is really great. What do you guys think this says about like what we typically view as an authoritarian kind of society that actually seems to have had some push in, in the direction of, of their country? What, what are your thoughts, George? I think science wins right i think
0: uh, this is a total victory for the science which is the covid-19 at the end of it at least the omicron variant no longer has the same you know scary uh, features that you know scientists pretend that it had or covid-19 like what it had in the past like couple of years when it first started it was lethal right like people still die from it but like i think china hong kong singapore all those asian countries like i think they did as much as lockdown as they could until they couldn't because The science is clear, right? Like the lockdowns doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, locking people up in like in their houses doesn't really stop the transmission of the virus and, and it might does more damage to the economy, right? You might not, you know, may or may not believe me with that, you know, our audiences, but I really think China removes zero COVID policy, just means total victory for science. And, you know, right now I'm hearing that there are many people who got sick in China, but, you know, nothing major, nothing keeps them, like, brings them, most of them to the hospital. Most of them just stay home and a couple of days the COVID, you know, their symptoms eases. So, like, Sohan, what are your thoughts on this?
1: I think
2: um, more than just the science ones, I think it's kind of nice that the people win. Like, it's kind of impressive that, yeah, like our protests really won. Like, we always just view that, oh, in China, you're not even allowed to protest but like uh, that's kind of like, oh, it's authoritative figure like there's no real uh, everything's kind of controlled everything was a state control there that's what i was looking for but yeah no i'm like the fact that the protests were the zero code policy went down i think that's just like impressive in general that yeah like even other countries like that we always view or oh, don't have any kind of like uh civil rights like actually it's completely thing it's not true like people can protest in china people can win protests in china that governments will feel the pressure.
1: Yeah, it's, I guess it's like, you can protest in China, you may disappear. Um, but if enough people <laughs> protest, then, then something will occur. And so, I mean, that's a positive thing. Um, you don't want to be the first one that disappears. But uh. <laughs> Did you guys hear actually that, I guess on the concerning side of authoritarianism, that is, China recently introduced like the digital yuan, basically, with an expiry date, where people are basically forced to spend like before a certain day and they're not allowed to save. What are your thoughts on that, Sohan?
2: So, so you said that they're forced to spend to a certain amount, right?
1: As if your money has an expiry date. So imagine if you have $100 and it's like you have to spend it by the end of the year. Otherwise, it's worth zero.
2: I think that's good for any kind of economy that has like a stagnating GDP, I would assume. Because... You would speed up the velocity of the money itself, right? Like how much it travels from, like, oh, like the person that gets it from the job goes to that small business owner. The small business owner now gets the money. that why there. Now uh, they have to end up spending that money at one point. Right? It just gives you that incentive to actually spend money and keep bolstering it more and more into the economy, right? Until, you know, like, you can start growing overall. Because yeah, I think with the COVID lockdowns, like a lot of the GDP of China did start stagnating for a bit, right? Because people couldn't go to factories and start working. So
1: isn't that just another tool to? kind of remove the wealth of the people?
2: I think uh, I'm, I might be viewing this more from a country perspective. From the actual individual like, perspective, it's completely different. Like, yeah, no, <laughs> you kind of lost your own power. I think it's like a state. I think it would just help in terms like, grow, like growing your economy, which is, I think, China's main goal regardless. So I kind of get why they would put a policy like that in place. But as an individual person, I think that would be one of the worst ways possible, because at that point, you either invest or spending it, you're not allowed to save for a rainy day anymore.
1: Yeah, like I guess what I worry about is that it takes away not only if you have a digital one like now they can easily freeze your bank account but now they also can take away your money if you don't like spend it by a certain date and so I guess it begs the question is like how are people going to build wealth and how are they going to save money and you know it just becomes not much harder to do that and you know maybe it does boost GDP in the short term but you know what does it mean for generational wealth and being able mm-hmm. to kind of save up you know money's for generations to come. I mean it's just the next C B D C central bank digital currency. Yeah.
0: Right. <laughs> where you don't even need regulators anymore because the central bank controls everything, right? About how the money is spent, where the money's going. And yeah. there might not even be paper money anymore.
1: Yeah. You don't it's happening too. You don't need SBF anymore. You, you know, the bank can rub, you know, the, the Fed can rug pull you, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. And I think just like follow up with what you said, Matt, about the trucker convoy, the freedom convoy. Mm. I think in Canada, I'm hearing that most of the people don't use cash. I think 80% of the circulation or 90% of the circulations are, or transactions are happening on the digital side. And only 10% of the circulations are or less are by cash. So when someone bans your bank account or blocks your bank or frees your bank account, that's actually a lot more damaging than, let's say, to India or to the rest of the world, like right mm-hmm. to the United States, right, for those countries.
1: Yeah, that's true. I think, first of all, that means that most Canadians have no privacy. Right, so then like and then adding in a digital currency is gonna be something of convenience. But I think it's still possible to do a lot of damage in India. Like they did a lot of damage when they revoked the legitimacy of their money and then basically everyone had what, like literally one day to go re- go redeem it? And so all the people who had who had been saving up cash underneath their mattress were screwed. You know, I think you can do a lot of damage with cash too. But it's just you have that much more privacy. I guess one
2: question I kinda like from all this that stems, like does the I like the increase of technology like we see on one side where you have like the like block not blocking bitcoin other like cryptos that are supposed to be decentralized but then you see on the other side where governments are to centralize that and to a point where they kind of have full control over like everything that's circling in the economy
1: where do you see like this use of technology like in the next little bit going to i think it's like what do we choose <laughs> it's like which way modern man and it's like you know, and, it, and it's like be self-sustaining. Use use a decentralized currency, and then there's the other path, which is like CBDC, UBI, uh, like rely entirely on the government. And so it's like us as a society, like where do we want to go? What do we want to build? Do we want to build tools that you know allow for freedom, or do we want to lock ourselves in cages and stop the terrorists, as they like to say, by everything being censored and everything being controlled?
0: Yeah, but Matt, like I, for for people who want to use like you know blockchain or crypto to hold some of their assets. Like, like people probably are just confused. Like what's the best way, right? Is it cold storage is the best way? But like that, you know, like sitting up a cold storage is not easy for most people. So like, what's your ah. advice for people who want to actually start doing
1: that? So, so everyone says like cold storage isn't easy, but like the majority of people learn how to drive. The majority of people learn how to swim. I don't know. In my opinion, those things are a lot harder than doing cold storage. You know what cold storage is? Okay. So you're interested in, you've heard about crypto. You've heard about Bitcoin. My first advice would be most of it is noise, like 95% of the things out there is noise. I I myself, I focus on Bitcoin only because I think it's going to be the asset that's going to be around for the next 20, 30, 100, 150, 200 years. It started from Genesis. It's been working great for basically 12 years now. So don't worry about all the noise. You know, go and stack a little bit of Bitcoin. And how do you store it? You know, you can go and you can buy a little bit on Coinbase or you can buy it on an exchange. But, but really, what does cold storage actually mean? It just means having buying a hardware wallet that's probably, you know, 50 bucks to 100 bucks, writing down a 12 word phrase and making sure that's securely stored and just making sure that the Bitcoin that you buy on the exchange goes to that device and is in your custody at all times. That's all cold storage is. It's just 12 words and a little device, right? That's all it is. And so if I was getting into anything, if I was hearing about crypto, I would just say buy a little bit of Bitcoin, buy like a half a Bitcoin or a quarter of a Bitcoin and just hold it, hold it for the next 10 years. You know, don't worry about if the price goes down or the price goes up. If you look at like how Bitcoin has done like the past year, you might say it went from 16,000 all the way down to 17,000. But let's look at Bitcoin, you know, since it's low two years ago, it's up 400%. Let's look at the best performing asset of the last 10 years. That's Bitcoin, but that Bitcoin beats out any other asset by far. And so just buy a little bit and hold it, you know?
0: Yeah. And I don't want to ask Matt a uh, follow-up questions about, you know, like apps such as Coinbase wallets, Betamask, mm-hmm. uh, those apps has been around for like, you know, many, many years. So are those platforms safe, in your opinion, for people to use and hold their assets?
1: Yeah. So like being like Bitcoin only, would I recommend them? Like, no, if you want to get into Bitcoin today, like I would just focus on Bitcoin. But like in terms of like the safety of those, like a lot of those tools have been out for a while. Actually, my story is like I originally came from the like Ethereum space building stuff there. And I was I just wasn't happy with the way that different products were being built in the space and kind of the concerns around smart contracts that were being built. So the different wallets in general, you need to know what the difference is between a cold storage wallet and a hot wallet. So if you're using something like MetaMask or something on your phone, that's a hot wallet. The the product that we build, Atomic Finance, that's a hot wallet as well. So just, you know, be wary of that. Don't put all of your coin into it. And so generally, like if you're using that, like store a small amount of funds in any hot wallet that you're using. And then if you're going and buying a significant amount of coin, make sure that you have a cold storage wallet and that you you have your securely stored and that you have it backed up and that you're, you're sending your coin there. The majority is there. And then you can have a little bit of play money that you might put into a hot wallet. So like generally, like, you know, those type of wallets are, are secure for the most part, but you have to do your research. Don't trust. You have, you should verify it. So.
0: so how much it take?
2: Yeah, no, in terms of the cold storage, I have nothing crypto, Bitcoin. I've never been like the biggest on that. But I guess I'll definitely agree in terms of like the diversification part of like not putting everything in like a hot wallet. Maybe Matt, I can ask you one thing actually. You've been talking a lot about you're not crypto, you're into Bitcoin, right? Could you kind of steal, man the case for like why Bitcoin over Ethereum? Because I know those are like supposed to be like one and two, right? Like for like, what is the difference? And like why is one better than the other?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And so I would probably preface that by talking about like, you know, where we came from. Because I, like my background is, what we like to say is like, I went from shitcoiner to bitcoiner. So we we were, you know, back in the day. And so, so we were focused back in the day on building atomic swaps and being able to swap between different cryptocurrencies in a non-custodial manner. And originally, I really believed in what Ethereum stood for, which was the ability to be able to get access to financial tools without having to give up custody um, of my assets. And Ethereum makes it very easy to do that. You can come in. And you can create smart contracts that allow for you to build all sorts of tools. You can build automated market-making smart contracts like Uniswap. You can have lending pools, money market pools. And it's just really easy for developers to come in and build these tools. But what does that mean at the same time? I think one of the downsides with that is obviously that it leads to a large surface area of attack. When it's very easy to build tools, people like to build a lot of abstractions. And so what that ends up with is you have a lot of folks that are building tools on top of tools, on top of tools, on top of tools. We like to call it the Jenga tower. Smart contracts have a very large kind of surface area for attack. You know, you have to write every single function out. And so what that really ends up with at the end of the day is the potential for lots of hacks to occur. You've probably heard of tons of like $80 million stolen here, a hundred million there. Over the years, there's been a tons of hacks that have occurred because when a lot of people come together and they pool their money into a smart contract, that creates a honeypot. So that's on the technical side of Ethereum. We've been developing some much nicer ways of doing this in Bitcoin. So that's one side of it, which is like, oh, from a technical perspective, there's probably better ways to build these type of financial tools that aren't as kind of easy to be able to, to hack and be able to kind of exploit. But on the other hand, there's also the ph- philosophical element to it as well, which is what does that Ethereum actually you know represent? And what is the ethos of the folks that are in the Ethereum space? And I think... And this really comes down to a why. It's like, why are we here? Why are we building cryptocurrencies? Why are we building on blockchain? Like, what is blockchain? What's the purpose of all this? The purpose of it is to build censorship-resistant decentralized money that is unconfiscatable, right, at the end of the day. And so one of the big, like, issues that comes into place with Ethereum is a bit of its history. Bitcoin started out as a, as a cryptocurrency that anyone could kind of mine at the very beginning. Ethereum, on the other hand, had a pre-mine, right? So of the tokens were distributed to the early creators of it, and then people could kind of buy into the ICO after that. And so there was this kind of an advantage to the initial founders of it, which I think is something that's a lot more important to understand. Bitcoin, we don't even know who Satoshi was. So there's no kind of central authority to govern and kind of be in charge of what's going to happen with the different parts of how Bitcoin evolves. Whereas with Ethereum, you always have the Ethereum foundation. You always have Vitalik that's going to be pushing the currency in one direction or another. And I think that's really dangerous with things like what happened with the Dow hack, you know, back in, I believe it was 2016 or 2017, where a large hack occurred to a smart contract and they decided to fork the chain in order to save it. And so it shows that it's no longer immutable. Then we also get into the supply cap. Ethereum, there's an unlimited supply. Bitcoin, it's fixed at 21 million. And so understanding the difference between the two is really understanding the ethos of why. And I think kind of the culture of building, like Bitcoin is building a sound financial layer, building sound money, right, that needs to be robust. Whereas Ethereum, the ethos is around experimentation and building things quickly and building things fast, which with it comes with a lot lot of vulnerabilities. So I think that's a quick snapshot that I can give on the two.
0: And I think I mean most of the shit coins are built on Ethereum or forked on Ethereum, right? So, I mean, Bitcoin, they're just a one Bitcoin because there's no fork to it. Well,
1: that's the other thing is like Ethereum creates a money printer, right? Like, you know, you can create this token, you can create that token. And you can say what you will about those tokens. Don't use them as collateral because, you know, everything's going to come crashing down. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, be, be careful. And especially, I think if you're someone who's new, who's getting into this industry and doesn't know a lot about it, There's a lot of ways to get like kind of distracted and get confused with what's going on. I think it's really simple. Bitcoin is the closest thing we have to like digital gold. It's a thing that's restoring wealth for the long term. It's something that's robust. It's something that's been working for 12 years. It's something where the consensus is not going to change anytime soon. Lots of things can happen with other coins. The top 10 list has changed dramatically over the past 10 years, but Bitcoin has always been at the top. And so, you know, that's what you always have to remember
0: yeah that's a very good point and i do want to you know follow up with like a, a question about economy i think to soham i think this week has been crucial in because the fed is going to decide how much is going to raise interest rates i'm assuming it's going to raise it the question is how much so can you give us our audience like a an insights about why this fed meeting and this fed raise is so important
2: so yeah no like i think a big reason for like why it's going to be important for um yeah this this interest uh, rate hike if it is a hike is because Right now, we're going to see the tax loss harvesting season. So a lot of people are going to start in 2023 and onwards what their new portfolio is going to kind of look like and things like that, right? And so because of that, what's going to happen is if people don't want to put as much money into the equity markets because interest rates are increasing they're probably going to want to loan out their money and give their money to somebody else. And that's going to start a trickle down effect. So the only people then like that can get loans. So for example, if you want to buy a mortgage for a house and stuff like that, the only way you'd be able to get that kind of loan, you're going to have to fork up a lot more money and you're going to have to like a much higher interest rate for that. And again, that's going to trickle down more and more because people won't be able to get those mortgages. And then I'm sure if you guys seen like the Toronto rent prices are going crazy because rent is going to be increasing things like that and like that's going to happen in the states too like if like you know like the rate hikes happen like that and everything like that so if the fed's not careful about the fact that they raise it too much you could be like the trigger for the recession starting like a lot sooner than what like a lot of experts have been predicting
0: and we've been asking this question every month now when is mm-hmm. the rate stop going to rate hikes going to stop or going to be easing down right what are we seeing from the CPI numbers from, you know, the inflation numbers, like, is it more positive for the economy or is it, you know, worse?
2: I think it's hard in general just to have that stop But
0: Just because in the
2: past two years, since 2020, like from 2020 and 2020, the amount of money they printed is more than the history of their money ever, right? So like, if you have that much more money that's been added to the economy, just a couple of years of interest rate hikes can't be the thing that stabilizes your inflation, right? Just so much more money, and if you have so much more money, like you have to think about the fact that the purchasing power that you have of each dollar you had beforehand, so will have to be halved. If if the money's been doubled, then each dollar you had is worth half as much. Just because the fact is that, for example, let's say you had ten apples and you had ten dollars in twenty twenty. Now there's still ten apples, but now there's twenty dollars out there. You're not going to want to give your one apple for a dollar anymore. You're going to want to give it for two dollars. There's just too much money in this market right now be able to just keep the interest rate to the point where you can kind of like stop increasing it even just like a little bit.
1: So um, do you think there's going to be like even more rate hikes in the next like year? Like how, how long do you think this is going to go on for?
2: I have no idea in terms of like how long, but I would assume that right now is probably the best time because the midterms have kind of been over. So, you know, like this is probably the best time the Fed has to be able to increase the rates because then by the time like elections come down again, they can probably like lower the rates to, you know, like be helpful that way. So I'd assume Right now is going to be a time of like the most amount of increase that we've seen.
1: Got it. And what are your thoughts on like the whole concept of modern economic theory? Seems very strange to me, uh, like just coming from like a Bitcoin perspective and looking at it, because it always seems like the Fed is just kind of pulling all these different levers and kind of hoping that a certain effect is going to happen that we're going to lower inflation that we're going to keep unemployment at seven percent it just seems to me like they're always kind of shooting in the dark and aiming for one thing and another thing occurs and there's there's actually mm-hmm. no playbook for this do you think there is a playbook or are they sh- just shooting in the dark i think
2: the one thing about economists that you know will hold true is that whatever they say won't hold true right like economists are going to are definitely going to be wrong whatever they say but It's just important to be able to, the Fed has such an important job. And there's just so many small little levers that happen. Like, you know, like the Fed at global policy for an entire nation. And the U.S. is like the most powerful nation in the world in terms of the economy, right? Like, they have to worry about that single mother in like a random city, in a random state that has to like, oh, like how much her apple is going to be. Like, the amount of factors you have is something that. I don't think there's going to be any kind of like a human model that can like do it. If there's going to be an answer, like with the way Chad GBT is and stuff, it has to be through AI. Like that can answer the optimal economics, I would say.
1: Isn't that terrifying? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the idea of having, I mean, my gosh, like Chad, well, we have to talk about Chad GBT here today, of course, but. But like the idea of humans kind of shooting in the dark and hoping for some results, kind of controlling the Fed and then and then AI controlling the Fed, well that sounds like the end of humanity to a certain extent. Like like how do you think a system would like that would, would work or what would happen with a system like that?
2: Yeah, George, you can add on too. But like one thing I just like from like what we've seen with AI is is getting to the point where it can start replacing certain parts of jobs. Like for doctors, it's more accurate when it comes to predictions. Like chat GPT right now can create leases and contracts that like lawyers themselves would ask a lot of money to create themselves for all 50 states, like a different version of that contract for the specific regulations there. Right. With those like occupations starting to be replaced, like the economics itself, I think would kind of become less important in the sense that there's going to be more of just like people that don't have to work the way we used to define work. Like, George, if you want to
0: add on to Yeah, I think it's a good thing. It just means that people are going to focus more on the creative side of jobs, which is always the benefits of automation. There are jobs that just like, I think it's mundane and people don't really need to do it. Right. Like, for example, I always think, you know, convenience store clerks, parking, it's, a, it's not really a great job. You're just doing a very repetitive task about, you know, supervising the customer, taking money and then giving the change. It doesn't really add on to the, the value. Like, I wouldn't say the value of the world, just like the evolution path of where we're going. I think the evolution path of where we're going is that like if every human can, you know, in some ways do things uniquely and differently, I think we're going to be evolving as a society really quickly, right? And, and that means eliminating some of the jobs that are really repetitive, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then what's going to happen to, you know, those jobs, I think we're just going to create new jobs. There's going to be new types of jobs that's going to be arising. And that comes to, you know, debate about universal basic income. But I feel like we're already past that point. We already did that for the past two years. So there's no debate
1: about that. Yeah, I mean, that's very true. But I think you bring up a really good point, which is that folks are gonna be able to do more with less. So if you're an entrepreneur and you want to go build a product, the amount of employees that you need to build a great product has reduced dramatically. If you can reduce like the number of developers you need by half, thanks to ChatGPT, writing a significant amount or co-pilot, writing a significant amount of code, then that, that just means that you can get the zero to one that much faster. You can get the product market fit that much faster. But at the same time, that means that those high growth startups aren't going to need as many employees at them in order to do those things. So does that just end up with less jobs or does that end up with just more companies that are doing more great things? You know, we'll see.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm really advocating that, you know, tech companies have less business roles, from mm. sales. I just feel like it's been, it's been too many, too many people without like not knowing how to code are running tech companies like Twitter, which is a, a big problem, <laughs> I think <laughs> at least. Yeah, I think that as we're closing this episode, I think, you know, breaking news definitely happened today on the day of our recording, which is like really interesting. just happened like three minutes, five minutes before, you know, I saw it. So it's it's crazy. Matt, what do you think that means for crypto and for the economy as our closing thoughts?
1: Closing thoughts, I think like generally what's occurred is bearish for crypto, bullish for Bitcoin. I think in general, like it's good to get this chapter out. I was expecting there to be more things that were going to come crashing down that didn't. And so maybe we didn't get them out this bear market, but maybe we will next time. I think it's going to be a bear market for a while. You know, It's not letting up anytime soon. We're going to have a bear market all of next year, likely. And then we're probably going to start getting out of the bear market after that. But that's fine. I think the bear market is for building. And I think that's what we're here to do. We're here to build. We're here to build, here to build great products for people. And so that's okay. For the rest of the market, I don't know. I think tech stocks are going to be down for a while next year. How about you, Soham?
2: Yeah, i'll definitely echo that yeah i think tech stocks i don't think are ever going to go back to what they were like in terms of without like an actual change in the business growing to something like that but in terms of crypto i think i also agree that yeah i think one year is going to be a thing more so just because i think because crypto is 24 7 the amount of time in the market versus like uh you know like nine thirty to 4 for like uh from monday to friday for like a regular stock exchange. I think that would just show that like the crypto correction would be a lot faster to happen, just because like the velocity that people can do things in. You know, like people in Hong Kong don't have to wake up at like a random time for them to trade on the New York Stock Exchange. So, it definitely, I think like crypto should get normalized like a lot faster. And I think like next year should be kind of like when crypto would get normalized.
0: And I think FBF is a rest, uh, and in your know, future in diamonds, it's actually a great thing for the crypto industry, uh, for for Web three as in general. I think that just sets the end of this chapter and the beginning of the next Mm one and i really hope that something useful is going to come out in the near future which i think it always will it always does you know in a quote-unquote recession time for any industry so i'm really bullish on bitcoin i'm really bullish on web3 not all those like shit coins but generally just like you know those things actually matter right for the for the tech stocks i I echo what you said um so um, i am surprised because when you know when april back in april when everyone knows that the party's over for tech there was a lot of bankruptcies that was you know anticipated back in the days about tech companies. So I, I'm really surprised. I think maybe venture debt plays into a piece of it. Uh, I do know like you know, which is like a closing topic. I guess it's like you know a couple of seconds. Like what do you guys think about the the venture debt that got poured into those unprofitable startups? So there are like many banks, like Silicon Valley Bank and a few other lenders that pour millions into companies that just raised C or Series A and um, they're entirely unprofitable. So like what's going to happen to those? Lenders now probably closing thoughts. so I'm going to go first. I think in general, like
2: um, yeah, the venture debt was definitely gonna be what like starts popping up again because now the market's going more towards debt over equity. Yeah, the fact that going for on unpro- that's always been the VC kind of way of going for things, right? Just like uh high growth, uh, you know, put in as many companies as possible. You know, if one out of twenty goes through, you know, and goes to the moon, you'll be happy. So I'm not surprised at all that that's kind of like how they're playing it. Where are you, Matt?
1: I think they were too bullish. And they got caught with their pants down. And now it's time to, you know, reconcile and it's time to, to take a good hard look at what are the companies that are opium and what are the companies that are real businesses that are going to provide real value and make revenue. And those are the ones that are going to survive. And so it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt a lot of VCs. It's the same thing that happened with VCs in the token markets that were, you know, the crypto VCs that are drying up now it's time to take a hard look at those companies and, and it's time to figure out which are the ones that are going to be around for the long term and which ones are going to nail. So I think you need to clean out the market every once in a while. Yeah.
0: It's amazing. So thank you everyone for joining the show. Thank you. So I'm Matt during this extraordinary episode. I'm glad to be sharing the breaking news with you guys. So have a great day and we'll be talking to you guys soon.